I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I know you think they're sappy and bland. And you hated La La Land. But I gotta make you understand They can be profound and beautiful So I need you to like musicals Look, I'm not gonna waste your time with a big rambling preamble about me and my day, cause who the hell am I and what do you care? I'm not gonna tell you that I just had hummus with pita bread for lunch, sort of a half lunch. Also with that garlic sauce that you get from Trader Joe's that's mimicking the garlic sauce from Zanku that's so good, and it's not quite as good as the Zanku one, but it comes close enough that it's worth buying. I'm not going to get into any of that. I will say that today, for me, has been very I Need You To Like Musicals focused. It is currently 2.44 p.m. in the afternoon on a Wednesday. I woke up, let's call it 7.45 a.m., immediately started watching the first of these two musicals with my morning cup of coffee, watched the entire thing, took some notes, put on another one, the second one, watched that entire thing, finished up my notes, and here we are. I have done little else, except for that hummus that we discussed. I did have some hummus and garlic sauce, of course. Welcome to I Need You to Like Musicals. Um, I'm very excited to talk about the two shows we're going to talk about today. You already know what they are because they're in the title of the episode, but I'll talk about them in just a minute. Before we do that, um, on my last podcast, Sondheim on Adderall, I did have a little news segment that sort of rose up organically. There just happened to be Sondheim news on a couple of uh, weeks that I recorded the episodes. So uh, I thought, like, well, maybe I should start this podcast with some fun uh, musical theater news. And with that, you know, the sky's the limit. You don't always get Sondheim news, especially since he's dead. But there's all kinds of musical theater news every day. All you got to do is go on broadwayworld.com. You ever been on broadwayworld.com? That's a website where, uh, yeah, broadwayworld.com. <laughs> I actually have a little page on there. Everybody does. Anyone that's been in a musical that had any kind of press release at all, even if it's a regional Los Angeles situation, you're on broadwayworld.com. Just search your name in there. So anyway, um, I uh, so I looked up some news and I picked the most interesting news item regarding Broadway and theater, musical theater. And this just in, let's go to the I Need You To Like Musicals news desk. There was a conviction in the case involving the fatal shoving of legendary Broadway vocal coach and performer, Barbara Gustern. Uh, Poor old woman was in her 80s. And in March of last year, she was shoved to the ground on the streets of Chelsea outside of her apartment, I guess. And uh, the shover went on trial and was convicted. This shover is a woman named Lauren Pazienza. Total stranger, didn't know Ms. Gustern. Uh, she just had finished having an argument with her fiance and she was barreling down the street. And she shoved Barbara out of her way and said, quote, bitch, unquote. And uh, she fell down and died from brain damage. Lauren Pazienza to, uh, was, uh, I think yesterday, sentenced to eight years for this. So what's the lesson in that, folks? Don't shove old ladies. That should go without saying. If you're out there shoving old ladies out of your way on the street, you know, regardless of how mad you are at your fiancé, don't take it out on an old lady. She's just trying to live her life. And, you know, I put it to your own self-interest. Do you want to spend eight years in jail? You know, don't do it on the merits of not doing it because it's a bad thing to do, you know, morality-wise. But also, you know, you never know what old lady will die from being shoved. 
So um, rest in peace, Barbara Gustern, and uh, I hope you learned your lesson, Miss Pazienza. Anyway, enough of that unpleasantness. Let's talk about our two musicals for this week, uh, both of which have very unpleasant themes. So here comes some more unpleasantness. Um, today's musicals, this week's musicals, are Ragtime and Parade. Now, a lot of people have been asking, nobody's been asking, uh, why I put last week's shows in the order that I put them in. Uh, if you recall, those were Matilda and Oliver. Like, why didn't I do Oliver and Matilda? Well, I'm kind of doing it uh, in the order of uh, how well-known they are currently. You know, uh, Matilda's a little bit more current than Oliver, maybe more the kids today know that one. And I would say, probably, uh, between Ragtime and Parade, I could be wrong about this, I think Ragtime at the time made a bigger splash and maybe more in the lexicon than Parade is. Of course, Parade just had a big revival that just closed on Broadway this year with Ben Platt. We're gonna talk about it. But um, I'm definitely not gonna talk about them in that order. I think I'm gonna talk about Parade first. So here's the thing, um, I was going to pair Parade with Les Miserables. That was my initial idea. It was gonna sort of be about musical martyrs because there's a heavy theme of martyrdom in each show. Obviously, they do it in different ways. I'm going to be very honest with you. I will eventually talk about Les Miserables. I couldn't bring myself to sit through it this week. Now, I will. Don't you worry. But I logged on to um, Broadway HD on my Roku and put on... Uh, I chose to watch the 25th anniversary concert. And... Just a couple minutes into that look down, look down. I was like, I can't do it again. I can't do it right now, man. This is not the way I want to spend my day. I have a lot of opinions about Les Miserables. I'm going to figure out some other show to put it in conversation with. So this week, I'm not going to do that. It's going to be Parade and Ragtime. These shows are very similar, and they pair very well together. They came out the same year, 1998, which uh, is the year that I started high school, by the way if uh, that matters to you at all. And I think I probably, it's probably just because of the age that I was and the fact that I started high school and emerged into adolescence or manhood or whatever. I feel like across many mediums, the late 90s, specifically 1998 and 1999, is like peak storytelling. There's, uh, you know, if you Google, do, do me a favor, just in the realm of film, you know, Google... Best films of 1999, and you will find that there are a lot to choose from. And it is kind of the year that everybody did their best work, film-wise, and some of my favorite movies were made. Um, Being John Malkovich, Magnolia, things of this nature. I, apparently it was a situation where the studios were more hands-off, and so more uh, auteurism was happening, whatever. And uh, it turns out on Broadway there was some... Uh, peak storytelling going on. Now, I should tell you, I do need you to like musicals. I only need you to like one of these musicals. And I just want you to take a minute, before I get into it, I want you to guess which one. One of these, I can, I can wholeheartedly endorse one of these. I think that, so one of them has good elements, but is overall mediocre. And one of them, to my mind, is nearly perfect. Which one do you think, I think, is nearly perfect? Three, two, one. Wrong, it's Parade. Parade is nearly perfect. I love the musical Parade. Let's talk about it. 
Parade is the first major work of a gentleman called Jason Robert Brown. Um, if you don't think you know Jason Robert Brown, you might know Jason Robert Brown if you've heard a little thing called The Last Five Years or a little thing called Songs for a New World, which actually was before this. Um, and uh, 13, the musical, Bridges of Madison County, the musical, seems to be doing a lot of film adaptations lately. And so he's an affluent little fella that grew up in the New York City suburbs. Um, he says that he would have been, he would have ended up being like a Billy Joel type of pop songwriter, singer, if not for Sweeney Todd and Sunday in the Park with George. So already, you're speaking my language. Uh, yes, those, those are two masterpieces in totally different ways, and uh, we love them. So uh, Jason Robert Brown and I. He started his career arranging and conducting as a young man. He worked on the show A New Brain, which uh, that's a blind spot for me. I need to check that out because I have not really heard A New Brain. I know that it's the team that brought you the Falsettos trilogy. Uh, I'm, I, I'd be interested to hear and see A New Brain. If someone in LA wants to put on A New Brain, uh, I'd love to see it. Now. Jason Robert Brown had a bunch of stray songs that he tied together into a little review he called Songs for a New World. Now, I'm not that familiar with Songs for a New World either. I'm really showing you guys my ignorance here today. Um, I've heard a few of the songs. Um, Stars and a Moon, everyone does that in their little cabaret show, whatever. Uh, and then the, the thing, a new world, da, 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 the ocean. I've never been that curious to see it because it seems like a lame <laughs> a way to tie songs together. First of all, you're, nobody knows who you are yet, Jason Robert Brown. Why are you making a jukebox musical? And the th sort of theme of it, I've heard him, you know, interviewed about this, right? Like read the disc jacket where he said, it's, I realized I had all these songs and they all had a common theme, which is that one moment where everything changes and you're in a new world. Okay, dude, big fucking deal. That could be uh, pretty much any song. It's just basically you're, you're describing like, okay, something happens. Wow. Stop the presses. There was an event that took place. Great. Songs for a New World was directed by Daisy Prince, who, as we all know, is the daughter of Harold Prince, legendary uh, director. And on the strength of his work in Songs for a New World with Daisy Prince, he was hired by the great Harold Prince for the big time to do the musical... Parade, a musical, which uh, we're going to talk all about it, uh, is based on actual events. Uh, the, the, the trial of Leo Frank in Atlanta, Georgia. Hotlanta. So um, I, I really appreciate the work of Jason Robert Brown pretty much across the board. I'm a little behind on his newer stuff, I'm not going to lie. I did, um, when I was looking for songs for this audition class I was doing, I did listen to the opening number of um, Honeymoon in Vegas. He made a musical based on that movie. And uh, I Love Betsy is still a song that's, it's in my book. <laughs> it's in my book, my audition book. And I sing it at that uh, aforementioned Italian restaurant where I work and sing uh, with the singing waiters. Now, here's the thing. I've heard from time to time that Jason Robert Brown may or may not be an asshole. And it looks like, yeah, that may be true. As far as I'm concerned, it doesn't make the work any less great. I'm uh, okay appreciating the work of assholes. I don't necessarily want to go camping with Jason Robert Brown, but I think his musicals, his songs, his composing is uh, top level. I think uh, he picked up this on-time mantle. I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda did too, as well, uh, also. <laughs> 
I don't know why I said that three different ways, but... Uh... Yeah, but he's an asshole, as it turns out. He's basically the Lars Ulrich of music publishing. He did a whole thing about how people shouldn't uh, steal sheet music online. Um, and got up on high... Like, apparently, like, won't stop talking about it. Is obsessed with it and keeps uh, debating people. So, whatever. And then, of course, you know, if you know anything about the last five years, which I'm sure we'll do an episode on... That's a semi-autobiographical musical, and so I don't know how autobiographical the character of Jamie is, but Jamie sucks as a person. Um, so I, it's about his marriage, basically, and he got sued for defamation by his ex-wife uh, when he wrote it and had to change certain elements based on the... yeah. But uh, that, that character in the last five years is yeah, what, he's kind of a, a dick. Then, so I, this was new to me, I learned he had a story to tell about the time that he met Stephen Sondheim. I think this is a really compelling story, and I want to tell it here, because, of course, I'm a big Sondheim guy. If you listen to Sondheim on Adderall, you know that. Here we go. So, um, Jason Robert Brown, the year is 1993, and JRB, <laughs> which we may or may not call him uh, throughout the rest of this episode, uh, just to not say all three names, was 23 years old. And he's a young upstart on Broadway. As we t mentioned before, he was doing arranging and conducting, blah, blah, blah. And a friend of his, who is also a composer, who he does not name in the story, he gives him a, uh, a fake name, he gets up on his hind legs and writes a letter to Sondheim and says, Hey, man, I really love your work, and I look up for you, and I'm a composer too. Now, Sondheim, uh, the wonderful, giving, educator and uh, godfather that we know him to be, always trying to help out young upstart composers. He says, thank you so much for your letter. That's fantastic. Let me tell you, let me, here's the thing. I got a musical premiering on Broadway right now. I would love for you to come see it and have dinner with me afterward. You can even bring your friend, Jason Robert Brown. So that's something. Uh, he gets invited to the new Sondheim show, which is not named in this story, in this little anecdote that uh, J.R.B. writes about, but as we know as Sondheim historians, Passion. The last actual show by Sondheim to be put on Broadway, uh, which happened nearly 20 years before his death. 1993. 94. I don't know. But um, so anyway, he, it's like, wow, he's got this opportunity. He's going to go see the new Sondheim show. It's going to be the best thing he's ever seen in his fucking life. And then he's going to go to dinner with Sondheim and talk to him about it. He goes to the theater. The curtain comes up. The lights go down. He watches Passion. He doesn't care for it. I can't really blame him. I mentioned this a few times. I think maybe when I get a little older, Passion will kick in for me and I'll realize that it's like the best one or something. But right now, I find it uh, pretty hard to sit through. I find it boring. My bad. Sorry. But so JRB sees this thing. He's like, oh, what was this? Oh, boy. Then uh, he goes to the restaurant with his buddy, and Sondheim is sitting there waiting for him. He's already ordered an appetizer. I wish I knew what that appetizer was. I bet it was in, like an artichoke tip. I bet you that he ordered the artichoke tip. Yeah, let's just say it was the artichoke tip. And Sondheim, uh, after a few pleasantries, he says, Did you guys like my show? Asshole that he is, Jason Robert Brown and his asshole friend sit there in silence and say nothing and refuse to answer that question and then change the subject. <sighs> Jesus Christ. Which, you know, 
is insulting, obviously. And also, you know, if you're 23 years old... Anyway, let me get to the end of the story, which is, after this dinner, JRB feels bad about it. He feels like he insulted Sondheim, which he obviously did. I mean, if someone says, how did you like my thing, and you sit there in silence, that's... Yeah. So he uh, says, Daisy, what should I do, Daisy Prince? Daisy says, uh, well, call him up. I apologize. He calls up Sondheim, and he says, listen, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to uh, offend you or insult you. Now, here is what Sondheim says back to him, and this is a piece of wisdom. Sondheim, always the teacher, always the educator, says this to him. And I don't think these are the exact words because I don't think that he transcribed his phone conversation. This is JRB's uh, paraphrase of what Sondheim said. I'm, I'm going to sort of barrel through it because it's a lot, and I want to get to these fucking shows. Okay. Sondheim says, Nobody cares what you think. Once a creation has been put into the world, you have only one responsibility to its creator. Be supportive. Support is not about showing how clever you are, how observant of some flaw, how incisive in your criticism. There are other people whose job it is to guide the creation, to make it work, to make it live. Either they did their job or they didn't, but that is not your problem. If you come to my show and you see me afterwards, say only this, I loved it. It doesn't matter if that's what you really felt. What I need at that moment is to know that you care enough about me and the work that I do to tell me that you loved it, not, quote, in spite of its flaws, not, quote, even though everyone else seems to have a problem with it, but simply, plainly, I loved it. If you can't say that, don't come backstage. Don't find me in the lobby. Don't lean over the pit to see me. Just go home and either write me a nice email or don't. Maybe next week, maybe next year, maybe someday down the line, I'll be ready to hear what you have to say. But that moment, that face-to-face -face moment after I have unveiled some part of my soul, however small to you, that is the most vulnerable moment in any artist's life. If I beg you, plead with you to tell me what you really thought, what you actually honestly totally believed, then you must tell me. I loved it. That moment must be respected. Boom. I wish that everybody would get this message because there are people, and I'm not going to name names, but I, I may or may not be friends with them, uh, <laughs> that feel like, well, you know, I get more so when I was younger, like you would go and see somebody's show, right? Because uh, we were all, you know, a lot of us have fallen off, but we were all trying to do theater and make things. And you, you, you'd see someone's show and you'd like to do that obnoxious thing where you're like, the costumes were great. And be like, because it would be so impossible for you to lie and say that you loved it. Just fucking lie. Guys, take Sondheim's word for it. I was in a play once uh, and two friends from high school came to see it. And afterwards, they were all squirmy and weird uh, to me. They, they never said, you know, that it was good or good job. But then like... A few minutes into the conversation, one of them said, you had some nice discoveries in the second act. <laughs> fuck you. Just say great job and go the fuck home. Thank you, Stephen Sondheim. And uh, we won't talk about you anymore. We're going to go uh, forward and talk about these two shows. Anyway, so Parade. Great score by Jason Robert Brown. Really good fucking score. Also, great book. Really good book writing by Alfred Urey. Alfred Urey, who is he? Briefly, he's a uh, Jewish man from Georgia, which uh, gives him the cred, certainly, to write this thing. A musical about what it's like to be a Jewish man in Georgia. He started his career writing librettos for some musicals in the 70s and 80s that you've never heard of, uh, one of which apparently starred Donny Osmond. And then one day he's like, fuck it, I'm just going to write a little play about my grandma and her chauffeur. Now that little play, folks, ended up being Driving Miss Daisy which became a feature film, which was, you know, a thing that people seemed to like. I don't, I, I, I think I like saw parts of it when I was a child, when my parents rented it, but uh, I don't know too much about Driving Miss Daisy. So Parade, Parade the Musical is nearly perfect. 
And I think what makes it so good is the fact that its content perfectly dictates its form. It's a musical about mob mentality. And I don't think that there's too many other mediums where that could come across as gracefully as it does here. I think you, it needed to be a musical to have that effect, right? It's, and the thing is, it's a period piece, obviously. It's set in the early 20th century, and it's got sort of, um, you know, uh, it's got elements of this old music of the South in that time, but also elements of pop musical theater. You know, those come up a lot, but it never feels anachronistic. It never feels weird like they're putting music that's too modern in an old story. It just, it's, it matches the feelings and the vibe so perfectly that that does not distract you. And that's really impressive, I think. If you ask me, which nobody did. I was in a production of Parade in 2017 in Orange County, and I think it was one of the better shows I've ever been in. Uh, definitely, it was small scale and intimate, but it was one of the more professional uh, things that I <laughs> have done. And I think this is mostly thanks to the director. Uh, we had a wonderful director. Uh, we also had a wonderful leading man playing Leo. Uh, we also had a, a really good Jim Conley. Um, the, the one uh, problem with this performance was this theater had a thing where they, you had to do a talk back after every show, meaning you know the actors and the team all sit on stage and field questions from the audience with like a moderator that works at the theater. Uh, and that's a bummer. You don't want to do that. I mean, so, some shows, maybe you want to do that. Uh, the worst one I ever saw was a Mike Birbiglia. Uh, they did a talk back after Mike Birbiglia show, uh, The Old Man in the Pool, that just came out last year. It's like the most unnecessary talk back. Like it's, the, the show is literally just a guy telling you a story from his life. And then it's like there's somebody from the theater saying, so um, what made you tell the story about your life? And he's like, uh, these things happened. And I already told you everything. Leave me alone. It's kind of interesting. If you're not, if you don't live in Southern California and you don't really know uh, the wild cultural difference between Los Angeles County and Orange County, I think it is significant to do a show like Parade in Orange County. It's not that significant. See, the problem is that if theater could actually change things, maybe it would be significant, but it doesn't change things because nobody goes to it. Like, the only people that saw this show were the suburban blue hairs of that area. If, if the normal man on the street was forced to go watch this, I, I, my point is Orange County is a little bit more conservative than Los Angeles County. Put it that way. And, you know, no judgment, whatever, I don't care. You know, live your life. Just don't be a dick. I did, there were some people in the cast one time, and this is one of my, uh, every, I, I feel bad every time I think about this. I went to dinner with people from the cast. A couple of them were, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say townies, but like they were very Orange County, and they were just sort of people that like lived near there and like did that show, uh, or did a lot of shows at that theater. And they were talking about, this is one of my least favorite topics, when somebody talks about that they ran into a person on the street asking for money, and then it turned out that person really like had a Ferrari or some shit, you know, or like they were fake homeless. Like, oh, why, you know, why are you begging for money and you could get a job? Look, you already, the whole idea of fake homeless, like that anybody would sit on the street to beg for money uh, unless they had to is just the most obnoxious thing that, uh, one of the more obnoxious uh, topics of conversation. So anyway, a couple of the people in the cast were doing this, talking about this in that uh, 
vein. And I didn't say anything, and I wish I had told them they were idiots. But uh, I'm a coward. I just sort of walked there with them and then uh, felt uh, resentful. Back to Parade. So Parade, uh, as we talked about, came out on Broadway in 1998 to critical acclaim and commercial failure. It bankrupted a production company, the one that uh, partner in putting it on. Uh, the reviews were mostly good. There was kind of a bad review in the New York Times from Ben Brantley. Uh, I have him reviewing both of these shows, of course, because they were in the same year. So, um, and I disagree with this review. Here's what he says. Quote, the death of Leo Frank may be an unlikely subject for a musical, but that is not what sabotages Parade. Musicals can be grim and even grotesque as long as they let you feel their heartbeat, the pulse that animates the behavior on stage. You need only think of Sweeney Todd, which drew its audience into improbable identification with its crazed, murderous title character. In this sense, the odds are comparatively in favor of Parade. It arrives with an innately sympathetic hero, undoubtedly worthy of our tears. But for those tears to flow, we have to get to know Leo Frank as a man, not a symbol. The civics lesson that is Parade forbids our ever approaching such knowledge." Unquote. I find this strange and hard to believe. And I, he kind of gives a bad review of Brent Carver's performance. Uh, he plays Leo Frank, and we'll get into who Leo Frank is for people who don't know. But um, I, all that I heard was the soundtrack uh, when I was first getting to know this show. Like, I didn't see it. I, I just heard. And Brent Carver on the soundtrack was pretty moving to me. I mean, I cared about Leo. I loved Leo. So, um, I don't know. I don't know if he was... Uh, the New York Times came on an off night. Whatever. I have a theory that could be totally wrong because I didn't live in New York City in 1998 and I was not part of the theater community. Uh, I feel like maybe Parade was eclipsed by Ragtime because they're very similar and they came out the same year. Uh, Parade lost the Tony Award to Fussy, which is, you know, that really shows you what the values are. It was not up against Ragtime for the Tony, even though they came out that same year. I, I think because Parade came out at the very end of 98, like in December, but... Um, so yeah, uh, lost the Tony Award to Fosse, which is just a review of Fosse. that shouldn't even be in the same category because there's not anything new in there, right? I haven't seen Fosse. I don't know. Did anything anyone write anything for Fosse? Who cares? It got um, revised and revived <laughs> later in 2007 in London at the Dunmar Warehouse. And what they did was they reduced the cast, did a lot of double roles. They also reduced the orchestra to like nine pieces, and it was a big hit. And then it moved to Los Angeles uh, to the Mark Taper Forum and uh, was starring T.R. Knight from Grey's Anatomy. I remember when that was happening. I didn't go see it because I didn't have two dimes to rub together in 2009. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there was the revival this year starring Ben Platt. And I hope that his performance in this, which people said was good, was, uh, re rehabilitates him in the public image because uh, everyone thought he was so bad in the movie of Dear Evan Hansen, which I haven't seen. I'm sure it was bad. I, I, don't, I don't know. But I need Merrily We Roll Along the film to be good. And Ben Platt, as we all know, is in that film. So I hope that Ben Platt uh, is returned to his former glory uh, based on his performance at Parade. Now, when they did the revival this year, there were neo-Nazis protesting outside, which is um, idiotic. It was the, the so-called National Socialist Movement. Uh, which is a far-right uh, racist, you know, given a bad name to socialism. I don't know why they're allowed to have that name. But, um, I mean, the thing about that, and this always blows my mind, is what a stupid thing to do, even for your own, to accomplish your own goals. I used to think about this when 
you know, the Laramie Project. Anyone ever seen that um, about the Matthew Shepard uh, murder of Matthew Shepard? And uh, the Westboro Baptist Church used to protest that show everywhere it went in the entire country because uh, Fred Phelps, their leader, was like a character in it and they're depicted in it, but also because it's like a pro-LGBT play. And in fact, when my friends uh, did it in Los Angeles, there were there was a presence from the Westboro Baptist Church picketing outside. And that got the fucking show on the news, featured on the news, and that raised the fucking ticket sales. Is there nobody in the Westboro Baptist Church that is clever enough to be like, hey guys, when we protest this show, more people go see it. You're giving it publicity. I mean, it's great because the, the you know, Parade is great and the Laramie Project is great. But what the fuck, like, what are you doing? Are you an idiot? Yes, I guess, I think the answer is yes. Nazis aren't smart, as it turns out. So here we go. Um, entry point to Parade. Both of our musicals this week do not have movie musical versions of them. And, uh, you know, that's totally fine. There is some stuff you can see on YouTube, uh, some filmed play uh, versions of each. The entry point for Parade is kind of complicated. It's three-pronged. It depends on how you want to do it. So if you want to listen to the soundtrack, here's what I would recommend. If you'd want to become, if you don't have Parade playing near you in your hometown anytime soon, I would say read the synopsis on Wikipedia and then listen to the Donmar Warehouse version just all the way through in your car. That is a soundtrack that has a lot of dialogue in it and it really tells the story. It's one of those like Hamilton. And that's how I got to know Hamilton, for instance, and a lot of musicals, you know, where you, you read the synopsis, for, you know, in the old days from the liner notes of the album, and then you listen, and but you know all the beats of it because you know the story, but uh, yeah. So um, I would do that. And then after you do that, I would go ahead and listen to that original cast recording because that actually sounds a lot better. It doesn't tell the story in the way that the Donmar soundtrack does, but I do think that there was something lost in the revival of Parade, which is that huge sound of an enormous ensemble and an enormous orchestra. And I feel like in the 2000s, there was a move on Broadway away from huge casts and huge orchestras. And I can only pray that that is moving back. I mean, it's too fucking expensive, obviously. But I think we talked about on the Sweeney Todd episode, the Sweeney Todd revival that's currently on Broadway right now with Josh Groban, they went back to the full booming orchestra version. And you really need that for, the, for Sweeney Todd. And I think you need that for this. I miss that when I when I hear the Donmar version, but it tells the story nicely. Except you do have some weird accents from uh, British people attempting to be Southern Americans. I watched this morning something on YouTube from uh, the Wallace Boose Theater Company. Uh, they did it uh, a few years ago. Actually, uh, did it in Marietta, where it takes place. Uh, you know, near uh, Atlanta. Very interesting. Uh, that's better than that whole idea to do assassins in the Texas Book Depository, which I would not go to. I would be a little creeped out being in Marietta, honestly. Um, I mean, maybe not because I'm a goy. But um, anyway, the weird thing about this YouTube uh, filmed play uh, is that there is no audience, but you see, you see that it's in a sort of a small 99-seat theater and that there are empty seats. But they make some mistakes that they just like keep in. 
Like, it's clearly done with uh, multiple cameras, but they don't bother to, like, go back and fix stuff. There are mics that aren't working. All of the black actors, their mics aren't working. What the fuck is going on? Like, all of... You can't hear any of That's What He Said. Arguably the best song in the show. We'll talk about it. Anyway, so that's why I was gonna say, when this thing started, I was like, this is a good entry point. This is, you know, a decent production. People should see this. But no, you, you, you can't not hear <laughs> That's What He Said. Uh, it's a waste of time to watch that, unless you're already uh, really into it. So, you know, quick overview. Um, if you've never seen Parade, you don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Parade is about the trial of Leo Frank. Who's Leo Frank? Leo Frank was a little Jewish man from Brooklyn who was uh, running his uh, family's factory in Atlanta, Georgia. A 13-year-old girl named Mary Fagan was uh, murdered on the floor of that factory. Her body was found. Uh, Leo Frank, the, uh, who, the owner of the factory or the guy that ran the factory, uh, he was con uh, accused of her murder. And there was a lot of anti-Semitism involved. There was a whole trial with a lot of uh, uh, manufactured uh, evidence and coached witnesses. Um, there's a lot of theories about who actually did it. And those are nodded to a bit in the musical. And at the end, the governor uh, reopens the case and actually commutes his sentence from a death sentence to life in prison while they're reinvestigating. And when that happens, a mob comes and breaks him out of jail and hangs him from a tree. Now, that's not a spoiler. Actually, in most versions, you should probably go in with that knowledge. In fact, they in the revival, they show the plaque where they explain that uh, at the very start of the show. So there you go. That's what happens. And the thing about Parade is like, there are, there's a lot of potential for like ham-fisted things you could do to connect the story to today, to, you know, put up a photo of Charlottesville or whatever. And I'm sure there are productions that have done this in some corner of the country. It's not necessary. The story stands alone on its own. And the audience, if they're adults, can fucking like watch the musical and make those connections themselves. I don't know who I'm mad at here. Like, I've never actually seen anyone do this. I'm just, I'm mad. I'm, I'm catastrophizing about a, a, a production of this that may do that uh, or have done that. Who cares? It opens up with a song called The Old Red Hills of Home, sung by a young soldier on his way off to war. It's truly beautiful and haunting. Jason Robert Brown is a wonderful melodist. Um, I think that, um, you know, when I was coming up in the t 2000s as a young musical theater guy, this show kind of turned a few people off, and I think maybe if you don't get the irony of this or, you know, when you just hear this, it does kind of sound like a patriotic Fourth of July musical. <laughs> um, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe not. But what you learn, and I think that it's self-evident in that first song, but you, it, it, it hits home later on is that losing that civil war sure really fucked up these people's heads, these people in the South with their uh, lost cause lies. And they have like this emotional experience of losing uh, their right to torture and enslave black people, but they, re they, 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 they project it in all these other ways. And, and th th this, this song does a good job of um, embodying that sadness and emotion without being too, again, ham-fisted about it. Very well written. It really becomes a musical, however, with How Can I Call This Home, 
which is, um, I, I don't know if you'd call this a musical theater I want song. And I hate the idea of a musical theater I want song. I think it's like bullshit and formulaic and you don't need that necessarily. I mean, there are a lot of shows that have them and who cares. But um, this is a, sh- a song where Leo is sort of walking through town during a parade and talking, talking about how alienated he feels with all of these uh, hillbillies uh, as a, you know, a lone uh, Jewish person. Or, but there are Jewish people, but the, he says the Jews are not like Jews. There are two very funny lines in this song. <laughs> they come out of nowhere where he's like, yeah, uh, the, and Jews are not like Jews. I thought that Jews were Jews, but I was wrong. <laughs> Just because he's been so serious up until that point. And then towards the end, he says, um, I'm trapped inside this life and trapped beside a wife who would prefer that I say howdy, not shalom. Which is like a laugh line. Uh, you know, it comes uh, kind of out of nowhere. And this song is, it's a fun song, but it really is. It doesn't match the rest of the show, but I like it. I like this song. And um, the Leo Frank in the original Broadway one, Brent Carver, who got that shitty review in the New York Times, is the one that I was first familiar with. If you listen to the Dunmar one, like that Leo is uh, a lot more of a caricature. He's George Costanza. He's just like, like What? I got to go to the factory. What? And um, it reminded me of the uh, documentary now send up of the Thin Blue Line where <laughs> that guy, uh, you know, it's it's based on the real one. But th- th- they show that that guy is such an asshole that that's why. Uh, what am I trying to say here? Like he got uh, falsely accused of murder and it was because nobody liked him, <laughs> even though he was innocent. Um, in the revision of this song, they take out some fun, uh, little crowd stuff like, excuse me, sorry, get your souvenirs, which is just, which is a shame. I wish they would have kept that in. They introduce us to Frankie Epps and Mary Fagan in, uh, on the streetcar on the way, the picture show. I'm going to go to the picture show. That's just a really fun song. This is similar. I, I'm, I think I'm a fanboy of parade and this is going to turn into a Chris Farley-esque, uh, that was cool. That was cool. That was cool. I like how they freeze on that moment between, like Leo and Mary are only in the same room one time when she goes to ask for her pay. I like how they kind of leave it ambiguous there where they're like, Mr. Frank? And he says, yes. And then it fades to black and it freezes or whatever. And then later we see what really happened, which is all she did was said happy Memorial Day and left. But it seems like they're, uh, you know, uh, leaving it open-ended, whatever. And... What's crucial to, um, you know, understanding, it could be so easy to make a musical where it's just Leo versus the racists, right? And that is what's happening here, or versus the anti-Semites. And that is what's happening here. Like, these people are xenophobic, and that is why they are falsely accusing him and treating him the way they're treating him and, you know, saying the things they're saying. But also, like, it's very interesting the way that the culture clash is depicted especially in the Donmar version because Leo is acting strange like when they show him the body it's they're suspicious of him because they are not familiar with his mannerisms and he's being very weird <laughs> to their eyes and I don't, I'm not saying that I don't think that it excuses any of the uh, police or prosecutors here um, but yeah, when, when they find the body and in, my God, in the original cast recording, the, the best track on this is the, I am trying to remember. I was checking around the factory. That guy is, is great. I wish I knew his name, but that guy is really great. Um, 
They cut the song Big News from the revision, which is a big loss. I get why it's gone. It speed bumps the story. Um, but Evan Pappas singing Big News on the original cast recording is one of the best moments on it. He acts the living shit out of that song. There also is something lost in the character of Britt Craig. And um, people tend to forget that journalists back in the day before uh, journalism was a corporate-owned entity. Like, journalists were were drunks and bums and, like, the, the, the dregs of society. And they're like, get the fuck out of here, you know. And so, um, you know, that was a nice sort of portrait of that character, but apparently was unnecessary for the running time. The funeral sequence is so beautiful. And um, I think it's a mistake to double the young soldier and Frankie Epps. I think that you need to see Frankie Epps um, be serious for the first time here. And I know that he's playing a different character. Um, but it's, uh, anyway, that's a side issue. It's not a big deal. Like, this is a music, we're on the side. I mean, we're meant to be on the side and we should be on the side because it's the right side of the accused here. Like, this is about the wrong man being accused. But the death of Mary Fagan is so fucking brutal and sad. And this funeral is so heart-wrenching that there's a moment here where you're like, yeah, fucking Frankie's call for vengeance. It's so huge and over the top. Burning and the raging fires of hell. But it's so earned. Like, it's so earned. And you for a moment, sympathize with these these animals, <laughs> these, uh, these Atlantans. And it reminded me of a play that I just saw here in L.A. called Heroes of the Fourth Turning. If you live in Los Angeles, I highly, highly, highly recommend you go see this play. It's the best thing I've seen in years. It's about just a bunch of far-right conservatives having a conversation outside of a house in rural Wyoming. And it's, I know that sounds like that could be, uh, you know, tiresome. And it, it is not for one second. Like it, and the, the reason this reminds me of that is because it, it's, it's showing you people with deplorable views and you do not agree with them and you don't even empathize with them, but you love them somehow. Like you can see them for what they are and say like, Jesus, that is extreme and awful. But their story still makes sense to them and they're not boogeyman, car boogeyman caricatures. And so I like that Frankie Epps is not a boogeyman, even though he does fucked up shit. And so does, of course, the prosecutor. There's really only one boogeyman, Tom Watson, uh, we'll talk about later. Uh, and I miss the, the bigger cast, by the way, on uh, the funeral sequence and the old Red Hills of Home. That comes across a lot better in the uh, OCR original cast recording. The cross-examination of Newt Lee. Uh, I played Dorsey, by the way. Did I mention that? I played uh, Prosecutor Dorsey. And that's this is where he sort of comes into play here. Uh, there's really good scenes in this. The book writing is great. His cross-examination of Newt. And that uh, he eventually, he's got two suspects and he ultimately, they cut Newt loose, Newt Lee, because he says, quote, hanging another Negro ain't enough this time. We got to do better for PR reasons. It's like, okay, we can't just hang, you know. Um, these are all just notes that I took while I was watching it, by the way. Uh, uh, the watermelon pickles sound really nasty. Uh, I, 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 I do, I'm not excited to ever try watermelon pickles. If you came from Georgia and you have your family recipe for watermelon pickles, no thank you. I'd rather have the cornbread and pig fat that Leo did not want uh, when they offered it to him in jail. That sounds a little bit more appetizing than uh, watermelon pickles. 
Longtime listeners will know that I tend to skip the lady songs, at least uh, especially shows that I got to know in high school because I like to imagine myself in shows and sing along with them, and I can't sing along to songs that ladies sing. Um, however, You Don't Know This Man is a great song. It's a banger. I really enjoy it. I used to skip all the Lucille songs. I don't love the Lucille on the original cast recording. Uh, when I did it, our Lucille was great, and our Frank, our Fr Leo Frank, was great. But uh, that one, she's a little, oh, <laughs> on the original cast recording. We meet Tom Watson, Tom Watson, the religious fanatic. He was a real guy. Uh, and he's the one entity in the musical that's like just sort of pure evil, uh, which is distinct from the rest. You can kind of see, you know, my character, for instance, uh, Governor, Dor uh, no, sorry, uh, Prosecutor Dorsey is an asshole. But you can kind of see his motivations. Uh, he's motivated politically. Uh, which doesn't excuse it, but you know, Tom Watson is just sort of the the real real bad guy. The original cast, uh, the original production rather on Broadway has a song "People of Atlanta," which did not survive the re revision. It's sung by a character named Fiddlin' John, who's not in the revision at all because they're trying to reduce the cast. But uh, people of Atlanta stand together on this day. I like that one. Uh, sorry if that was loud. Now the trial. The whole second act of the first, the second half of the first act is all Leo Frank's trial. And it's so fucking engaging. Why isn't this done more in musicals? Why aren't there more musicals that are trials with people on the stand and opening statements and closing arguments? It's ripe for this particular mode of storytelling, musical theater. And uh, Parade is the, the, the best version of this, I think. It's really the best part of the show, the trial, I think. And um, so if you're out there and you're like a person that writes musicals, please uh, write one with a trial in it. And that's my advice to you. The orchestrations on 20 Miles from Marietta, which is uh, my character, Governor Dorsey, it's his opening statement. Um, I really, uh, there, there's something like very beautiful in there that's happening with the violin. And I didn't even, um, I, it wasn't this, I didn't really talk to the people in the pit because they were unseen. They didn't see us and we didn't see them. But one day just hanging out outside, like the violin player was this uh, young woman and she found out that I was the one that sang that song. And she was like, oh, that has the most beautiful intro to it. And that was like her part. Like it was, that's like my favorite part of the score. And then I said something like, yeah, that's our moment. And I think it creeped her out. <laughs> I meant, I didn't mean it to be, you know, creepy, but she seemed creeped out when I said that, that that was our moment. Little story for you there. The Factory Girls song, when the Factory Girls are given their testimony, uh, is really scary. And uh, the way that the lyrics sit on the music is so perfect. And let me tell you something. False accusations of sexual assault are extremely rare. Um, every hundred women are, are sexually... You know, the two men are falsely accused for every hundred women that are sexually abused. But uh, this, on some level, is the sort of the male nightmare Right, that uh, out of nowhere, there's multiple young girls uh, telling uh, the legal entities that you've uh, been inappropriate with them, and so it's really, um, and then like it's followed up right away with this real shocking come up to my office, which is, if it's done right, it's both scary and hilarious, and Brent Carver does a nice job of this. Um, Man, like, and I just wish that I was like a little bit smaller and a little bit more convincingly Jewish because uh, the, the the opportunity to play Leo Frank and to be able to have this moment, just to be a completely different, this is where Leo is uh, shown 
on stage the way that he's being talked about and not how he really is as this fucking pervert that's making these young girls come up to his office. Why don't you come up to my office? Got lots of things that we both can do. Um, and it is like darkly funny and upsetting. It's my favorite type of shit. In the version that I watched on YouTube, this uh, production in Marietta, there, there was no dress, like the whole where he shows Mary's dress to her mother, her clothes. Um, the, he, he pantomimed it. And I wondered if that was a mistake. And the reason I thought that is because that happened to me. Luckily, it was a dress rehearsal and not a performance, but uh, I fucked up and I didn't get the dress in time. And I tried to cover because obviously you're supposed to uh, ask her what she wore and then Mary's mother, on the stand. Uh, you're the prosecutor. And then the, the, the mother says, uh, oh, her, this dress and this thing. And then you hold up a dressing. Would these be the clothes? I didn't have the dress because I didn't get it. And so I said, can you imagine the clothes? And uh, this uh, woman playing Mary's mother did not go along with that at all. She like stopped and was like, can you just hold it up? You know, they need the cue. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's no fun. Anyway, um, then she sings My Child Will Forgive Me, which uh, does the old Ballad of Booth trick where it sings a beautiful, tragic song and then ends it with an epithet. And you're like, oh, ah, I was sympathizing with you. Uh, it's not really, she just uses the word Jew, but she does it hatefully. Ah, so I forgive you, Jew. Just like that. Exactly like that. That's exactly how it sounds, folks. Then we get to what's maybe the best song in the show. That's what he said. Jim Conley, the star witness, gets on the stand he is a black guy that works in the factory. It's a genius song. He's telling a made-up story. At least we think it's made up. If we believe Leo Frank is innocent, which we do. We do. About um, how uh, he went up there and uh, he witnessed... Uh, he was there right after the murder and he helped Mr. Frank uh, dispose of the body, whatever. So what's so genius about this is like it's borrowing from the Music Man Harold Hill model of the Trouble in River City. With somebody uh, spinning a yarn and talking some town yokels into something that's uh, made up. But it's about rape and murder. And it's like, you have... I think that uh, my favorite type of, uh, I don't know, art, but like my, at least my favorite type of musical theater are moments, ones that have moments like this, where you're sort of torn between wow, like this guy is really putting on the performance of a lifetime. And also, wow, this is a really disturbing thing. It's the old anti-hero Tony Soprano, Harold, uh, not Harold Hill. Yeah, Harold Hill, but also Walter White is what I meant to say. Thing um, where you, you're split and you're, um, you know, whatever. You get what I'm saying? Let's move on. They also, right before that, when they say, bring in Jim Conley, they cut another thing where everybody's talking in counterpoint. And that's a Sondheim-esque trick where you take... You know, he, he uh, not everybody is thinking the same thing at the same time. So people are singing different lines over each other. Um, and there are a few instances of that are kind of cut out of the uh, revival of this, which is a shame because I like that stuff. Then you get to Leo's testimony. The first time I heard this song was before I'd ever heard of the musical parade. And it was while I was at UCLA. And I was in a, a, a class, well, my short stint at UCLA and trying to get into the musical theater track in my freshman year. Um, and somebody sang this song and it was like, nice song, nice song. And then he says, I never touched that girl. And I was like, what the fuck? What is this song? So uh, that's a hell of a song. That's a heartbreaking song that it's hard to speak my heart. Leo's testimony. 
God, it's all so good. Then Governor, uh, I keep calling him Governor Dorsey. He will become governor later in real life. But uh, Prosecutor Dorsey, he makes his closing statement. And when I play a role, you know, I'm not Daniel Day fucking Lewis. I don't really embody it that much. I do do a little bit of research. And when you play a historical figure like uh, John Wilkes Booth or Hugh Dorsey, you can, you've got plenty of history to draw on. And so... Um, just like when I was John Wilkes Booth in Assassins, I didn't get that deep into the research. I, I focused on one aspect, which was his escape route, which I thought was the most important thing. And in this case, I read Hugh Dorsey's closing statement, the real one. And it is wild. It is wild to read. First of all, he does say guilty three times as the clock is chiming. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Uh, but also the funny thing about it is he keep saying different versions of, um, and I'm talking about the real Hugh Dorsey from history, right? Not in the musical. In his closing argument, he says a bunch of times, look, I like Jews. <laughs> I think Jewish people are great. I just don't like this one. This Jew here is a murderer, but I think Jews are fine. <laughs> it's really weird. Uh, and of course, the real Hugh Dorsey, as I just said, he did become governor for two terms from 1917 to 1921. He was Beaten in 1921 by Tom Watson, the bad guy in this musical, uh, who by then was a full-out white supremacist. And um, what's interesting about Hugh Dorsey is after he'd been defeated, he made a statement uh, called A Statement from Governor Hugh M. Dorsey as to the Negro in Georgia that was pretty uh, progressive for its time and place. Um, this man was a champion of the African-American, didn't do too much uh, for the Jewish American, but yeah, there you go. He, here's a quote from that statement. He says, quote, to me, it seems that we stand indicted as a people before the world. If these charges should continue, both God and man would justly condemn Georgia more severely than man and God have condemned Belgium and Leopold for the Congo atrocity. And he was talking about the lynching of black men in Georgia. And yeah, 1921, that's something, right? When I played Dorsey and uh, the guilty verdict came down, the director said, uh, Chris, have some sort of reaction there. Like, but some sort of, and then I, I tried to react because I was supposed to make a quick exit before the cakewalk. But uh, I, I, then she's like, eh, make a vocal reaction. And I tried this so many different ways. And it finally ended up, I think, just being like a rebel yell, which is appropriate, right? Because the Civil War is when that all started. The, or something like that. I, I don't think that was how I did it, but... Um, you get my point. The cakewalk in ours, which ends the first act, was uh, chilling, haunting. Uh, and I don't think I could do it justice by putting it into words. But it just had, you know, Leo and Lucille sitting there on chairs um, while everybody, you know, and looking completely destroyed while everyone is dancing joyfully to joyful music. And, you know, you have a little bit of intermission. Go out and get yourself a nice orangina. Come on back. Act two. Um, a couple things happen. We, eventually, we get into a song called A Rumblin' and a Rollin'. Now, here is maybe the first sign of trouble. I do think that the sentiment of this song, what this song is saying, needs to be said. But there's a vibe to this song that makes me uncomfortable, and I think it has something to do with uh, who the authors are and the fact that they're... Uh, Lily White. Now, they're Jewish, to be sure. I mean, J.R.B. certainly is. He uh, <laughs> talks about that quite a bit, and that's an element in a lot of his shows. It's just, I guess the parlance and the... It seemed like it... Uh, I would wonder, 
and there's not too much information on the making of Parade, or at least I wasn't uh, diligent enough to find it. I wonder if this wasn't added at a later stage because they were worried that, they, uh, you know, how it was going to be received on the African-American level. <laughs> because, and the line in this that, you know, is the most resonant, of course, uh, this is when all of the people from out of town are coming in support of Leo to try to uh, get his sentence overturned. And these are two black characters singing about it, uh, saying, uh, I can tell you this as a matter of fact, that the local hotels wouldn't be so packed if a little black girl had gotten attacked. Uh, they're coming, yes siree, because a white man's going to get hung, you see. There's a black man hanging in every tree that they don't ever pay attention. Like, that gives me chills, actually, just saying it right now, and it's weird, whatever. But um, it does feel like an addendum. It does feel like it's sort of tacked on to manage uh, controversy. I could be totally wrong about that. There's a great documentary from the early 90s called Blacks and Jews. I think it was on PBS or whatever. It's accessible now on Canopy. But it's all about the fraught relationship uh, between black people and Jewish people and how they uh, helped each other in the civil rights movements and then had a split. And it's about the riots and uh, race riots between the Hasidim and the black community in Brooklyn. Uh, and also about the whole controversy where the kids from the Oakland High School went and saw Schindler's List and uh, laughed when uh, somebody got shot. Uh, and Yeah, anyway, whatever. That, that You could make a, a great sequel to that with all this Kanye West bullshit, but... Anyway, I am neither black nor Jewish, so I'm not going to wade into that territory. We then get into the governor's party where uh, they do a song called Pretty Music. And you do kind of, you, you, we barely met the governor. Like he came in for one second in the first act. And you do kind of be like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, and why do we care? Who is this asshole? Why is he singing about pretty music? And he is uh, the, the, let's call him the goy savior of the piece, right? He's um, whatever version of white savior is for uh, the Jewish people. Like he's the guy that eventually, uh, yeah. When uh, we did this show, um, I did a lot of uh, ad-libbing. Not, not ad-libbing during the... No, that's not what I'm saying. I had to be in the background in this scene a lot, having fake, quiet conversations with people while other scenes were happening in the forefront. And because I am a total unprofessional jackass, I would try to make people laugh. And uh, if you're a young musical theater student or, you know, young uh, aspiring actor, don't do that. That's a, a shitty thing to do. And uh, I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I don't even remember saying this. It's just uh, my friend uh, Tucker, who was in the, the show, told me about this later. We, we had the um, little hors d'oeuvres that were crackers and cheese that we were supposed to be having at the party. And people were walking around on trays with crackers and cheese. And the crackers were stale as fuck at a certain point because they'd been sitting there on the prop table. And uh, so I was, I was very much in character as Governor Dorsey. Fuck, prosecutor Dorsey. Um, and uh, apparently what I said was uh, to uh, Tucker, I took a bite of the hors d'oeuvre and I said, well, that's just awful. And uh, it made him uh, break and uh, <laughs> break character. I also, I do remember this. This was, I was very proud of this. And again, this is very self-serving. But my point is I'm wonderful and hilarious. So get on board with how funny and wonderful I am. Um, when early on during the, the first parade, during uh, how can I call this home, I had to do the same thing. I had to have a quiet background conversation with a couple of people and one of whom was Mary Fagan, the soon to be murdered Mary Fagan. And I uh, said, listen to me, I'm from the future. You're about to be murdered. Do not go into the factory. You're going to be killed. Um, 
and made her break character. I thought that was uh, pretty funny also. But unprofessional. So, you know, don't do that. Now, shortly after this party scene, you get uh, the worst scene in the show. Uh, the fishing scene, which was added for the uh, revival. And it sucks. And the song within it sucks. It is boring. It's called The Glory. Now, it used to be... It, was, it replaced a different song that was at least shorter called Letter to the Governor, which was based on um, actual history where the judge, in the case of Leo Frank, after the fact, wrote a letter to the governor uh, expressing his concerns and his reservations about the verdict, saying that it, that it may have been motivated by symbolic revenge on the North. Now, when you take that out, what you have in this scene is still that judge and uh, Dorsey which gives me another little song, a little duet, and I got no problem with that. But it's the judge is like uh, trying to sort of manipulate Dorsey into uh, running for governor so, to, to keep the American MAGA values alive. And they kind of did Judge Roan dirty with that. I mean, that was a real guy. And, you know, I mean, if, uh, fuck him. He, you know, sentenced Leo Frank to hang. But also, you know, did not really giving him credit for writing that letter, which he did. So what the fuck? It's weird. And that song, of course, you know, it, it articulates something that they fucking never stop saying, these conservative types, and, you know, getting the glory back, you know. What is a conservative, guys? Can you explain it to me? What is there left to conserve? Make America great again. When was it great? Anyway, this argument has been made. Um, I'm sorry to offend my conservative listeners. And why, why are you here? Why are you listening? You shouldn't be. Go fuck yourself, conservative listeners. But also, if you're a, an establishment Democrat, I don't want you uh, your patronage either. Everybody stop listening to this podcast unless you share all of my specific beliefs. Jesus Christ, we're over an hour. We got to fucking get moving here. So um, this is not over yet. It's such a beautiful song. But it's like, again, it's if you go into this knowing that Leo is going to hang, this song is similar to our time in Merrily Rule Along, where it's beautiful, but you've got this tragic knowledge. We know that it doesn't matter, that the gathering of evidence, and it's so exciting, that sequence where Leo's wife, uh, Lucille, and the governor are gathering evidence, but sort of overshadowed, you know, hanging over it all is what we know is going to happen. And then we go right into Feel the Rainfall. Um, I had to sing backstage for this uh, as one of the voices in the chain gang, which is uh, awkward. Um, there were two... Uh, gentlemen of color in our cast and the rest of us were white guys and to just be back there having to be like yeah uh, it's weird uh, it's weird what's smart about this song and this sequence is that it doesn't fully implicate Jim Conley it just casts doubt by um, sort of it, 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 it casts doubt it, it makes you have doubt uh, it, it shows that there's enough reasonable doubt <laughs> to not uh, hang Leo Frank. Now, it, ha it strongly suggests that uh, Conley did it. And there was uh, some, you know, stuff that came up later, way later, um, that maybe corroborates this. But they don't come out, they, they don't take a stance on this. The musical doesn't. They kind of just, they, they, they have a vague sort of a chain gang spiritual where Jim is singing and it conjures the image of rape. And there's even a musical orgasm. And the roll, roll like thunder. 
uh, that's sung a lot more skillfully by other men than me. Uh, Rufus Bonds Jr., for instance, the original guy, he's the king. He actually revised his role here in uh, Los Angeles. And uh, by the way, this musical orgasm is Sondheim's dream realized. He wanted to do that uh, in uh, the Judge Turpin's Joanna, and Harold Prince may have cut it. So there you go. You're welcome, Sondheim. And when we did these talkbacks at the end of each performance, uh, somebody would always ask. First of all, they would ask poor Robert, who played Jim. They would say, like, now, uh, I think that maybe that guy did it. Did he do it? <laughs> and um, every night, the poor man, Rob, you know, Robert, who has actually uh, had to, his, his career is on the upswing, it looks like, uh, at the moment. Uh, he had to... Uh, sort of uh, act like it was a novel question and be like, well, I don't know, you know, it's just something pointed to it. So good for him. If it were me, I feel like I would be like, uh, you know, we get this question every night and uh, you shut up. <sighs> I don't know if I'd say that. That's not very nice. Once they commute a sentence, we get a song called Where Will You Stand When the Flood Comes? Uh, again, you really need a big cast for this because it's a fucking mob. It's an angry mob. And it's harder to do. This is probably the biggest problem with the pared down version is not having a mob wherever you stand when the flood comes, breaking shop windows and, you know, with pitchforks and shit. And during this song, you know, Prosecutor Dorsey makes a Faustian deal with Tom Watson, the extremist, and he does it uh, not for ideological reasons, but for political reasons. He does a little bit of a, a Mike Pence situation, right? He uh, gets on board the, uh, the gravy train by uh, getting in bed with a creep. So there you go. And then, you know, the picnic scene is very sweet. There are two picnics here. Um, I mean, sorry, by two picnics. There's one in this show and one in Ragtime. Now, this picnic, picnic scene, um, I nearly started crying in rehearsals watching these two actors do this. Because, like, if this is done right, my God, I didn't get it listening to the original cast recording and I think maybe just because I hadn't uh, you know it's not the kind of thing that comes across it just sort of sounds like a pretty song but the idea of just these two outcasts in love having a picnic while a guard is watching standing by and just and the idea of like someone believing in you when no one else does it's so fucking moving and then, you know, as we discussed earlier, Leo gets hanged. It's very sad. And then they sing the Old Red Hills of Home, and it's very creepy and uh, visceral. Now, here's what's really important to the theme. Lucille does not leave Georgia after this. She remains a Jewish woman, a Georgian, and the supportive wife of the late Leo Frank. And I think that this is like a good illustration of like why of how, like, you can stand for the national anthem even if you're critical of America. And I had a, I've fought with people about this before, by the way, other people that are of my uh, general uh, belief system, where we'll be at the, uh, the uh, sports game or the Hollywood Bowl and they'll, they'll, they'll do the national anthem and they'll be like, I'm not standing, fuck that. First of all, it's an empty gesture to not stand. It's just like, you know, who cares if you stand or not? It doesn't affect, it doesn't, all you're doing is drawing attention to yourself. It's the same as not saying I loved it when you see someone show you didn't like. <laughs> but also, um, you can stand for the America that you love. And as a putrid a place as this country can be, there are aspects of it that I love. I uh, don't have them at the, <laughs> to, uh, at my fingertips at the moment, but... Do you get what I'm saying? I feel like uh, 
Lucille's decision to remain a Georgian is a, a very resonant one. And so if you um, have a problem with America, which I do, um, there are ways that you can still also love it. And uh, this is kind of a half-baked theory, but there you go. Now, so that's the musical. That's the arc of the musical. Um, it's pretty faithful to the facts, I think. Um, LeoFrank.org, by the way, is the best resource to look at the real story and the actual historical documents. Now, there have been attempts to exonerate Leo Frank since then. Uh, in 1922, a Dutch journalist named uh, Pierre Van Passen looked through Prosecutor Dorsey's files and he found discrepancies between the photos of the bite wounds and Leo's dental x-rays. Now, I should tell you something. The newspaper would not print this. And in fact, it was the Jewish community in Georgia at the time in 1922 that like suppressed it. They did not want this to come to life uh, because they didn't want to reopen old wounds. And they were sort of uh, the, the general consensus was like, uh, well, let's just assimilate here. Let's let's uh, let's not talk about this anymore. So this actually didn't come to the public uh, consciousness until 1964 when this guy's memoir came out. Because, you know, there were no blogs in 1922. If the newspaper won't print your story, you're kind of fucked. You could stand on a street corner like a psychopath and yell it, but, you know. And then, you know, so 1982, this old fella uh, named Alonzo Mann, he just comes out of the fucking blue. He was Leo's office boy, and he just decides to say before he dies that, uh, yeah, he knows that it was Jim Conley and not Leo Frank, that he saw Jim Conley holding a limp dead body. So uh, this didn't do anything. This didn't exonerate... Uh, Leo, uh, and due in part to um, the family of Prosecutor Dorsey, the, his ends, uh, his uh, forebearers—not forebearers. What, what's the other? You know, his grandchildren, great grandchildren, and Mary Fagan's family. The Dorsey and Fagan families were like uh, blocked this from uh, becoming a thing. One piece of information that I could not corroborate that they have in the musical but I don't see anywhere and I can't even find anything that says it's not true so I wonder is this business about the sawdust in the lungs please write in to I need you to like musicals let me know so if you're not you don't know what I'm talking about when they go to question Jim Conley again when he's on the chain gang he says uh, the coroner found sawdust in her lungs and there isn't any you know what that means that means uh she must have died in the basement because there isn't any sawdust on the second floor. That means she was alive when you moved her. Hmm. Is that invented or did that really happen? Because I can't find it on leofrank.org and I don't know. It seems kind of convenient. So whatever. Let me know. Now one more thing about uh, Parade real quick. And this is just a, a, a funny anecdote. Um, <laughs> during these talkbacks, the guy that played Leo, who by the way, very very talented young man and he played this part again in other places because he was just so fucking good and so uh you know sort of born to play it somehow um he he said in the middle of this talk back he completely bummed everybody out because he i forget what question he was answering but he says yeah i wonder sometimes if he did it and it's possible it's a possibility maybe he did it and after the audience sat through this fucking musical to hear him say that, they were all like, oh, jeez. <laughs> anyway, I feel like Leo Frank didn't do it. And anyway, Parade is one of my favorite non-Sontai musicals of all time. So congratulations, Parade. Let's move on. Let's talk about Ragtime. 
Now, when it comes to ragtime, this is probably the first musical where I was kind of in on the ground floor. I saw it uh, here in LA when I was 14 years old and it had just premiered on Broadway and it was fresh. And I remember I liked it because it felt fresh, but I also, I didn't love it. Even at the age of 14, I was entertained, but I remember thinking that there was too much crash boom bang. Like every song ended with a crash boom bang and it felt a little tiresome. I should tell you, I like it way less now, um, revisiting it. And I think that the biggest problems are poor craftsmanship, especially in the lyrics. I think, uh, I gotta say, this is music by Stephen Flaherty and lyrics by Lynn Ahrens. Ahrens? Ahrens? I don't know how you pronounce that. I don't, they've done a lot of other things. They did uh, the Once on this Island and uh, Susicle and all that shit. Um, I think that the lyrics are terrible. The music's kind of pretty but the lyrics are bad. I'm gonna identify some of the worst lyrics as we go through this. Uh, but overall, just the music and lyrics don't work together. Um, and I have a theory, by the way, about lyricists. I think, with a, one or two exceptions, that anytime it's somebody's only job to write the lyrics, those lyrics are pretty bad. This happens in the case of uh, Bernie Taupin with those Elton John songs. Tim Rice with those Andrew Lloyd Webber songs and later more Elton John songs. Uh, I think that um, there's something about being a lyricist only where you kind of suck. Uh, not always. I understand there are exceptions. I'm just saying a lot of the time. And some of my favorite musicals are ones where it's a music and lyrics by situation. So there you go. And I think this is a good example of that. I think Lynn Ahrens um, is maybe the culprit in um, Ragtime being not very good. And uh, if you want to call me a misogynist, I'm, I'm happy to uh, argue with you. You know, I like the, uh, the work, certainly, of uh, Janine Tesori. And uh, I think Anna East Mitchell's Hades Town is like one of the best musicals of the past uh, 20 years. So go fuck yourself. It's not because she's a woman. It's just because the lyrics are bad. She's bad. The other problem is the historical whitewashing that happens in this, um, which I think should be pretty clear to anybody watching Ragtime today and not in 1998. And um, I'm not uh, trying to take anyone to task or fucking tell you that anything's problematic. But one of my favorite films of all time, and certainly my favorite documentary, is Los Angeles Plays Itself, which about the history of Los Angeles being portrayed in film. It has nothing to do with ragtime, but there's a line when they're talking about Chinatown, uh, the, the movie Chinatown, the ending specifically, that I think it applies a bit to ragtime. Here's the quote. This is history written by the victors, but as usual, it is written in crocodile tears. That's right, folks. That's what's going on here with ragtime. I don't know how much of this whitewashing is the fault of the source material, the novel by E.L. Doctorow, and what is the fault of Terence McNally, who wrote the book. Um, I don't care for the work of Terence McNally. You know, uh, rest in peace. To, he, he died uh, of COVID, actually. But... Um, I, uh, yeah, I think that the, uh, maybe it's just by today's conventional wisdom, but, but it feels really condescending, a lot of it. And we'll talk about that in more detail as we go along. The original cast has the great Audra McDonald, who was already big from the, she, she broke big in her, the revival of Carousel, Carrie Pippridge. 
and uh, the play Masterclass, written by the aforementioned uh, Terrence McNally, RIP. We also get Brian Stokes Mitchell. That's his first big thing. He's our old friend from the uh, Sondheim concert at uh, Hollywood Bowl. He sounds, he's so perfect in this role, and he sounds so amazing on the, the CD, the, uh, the CD, old man, original cast recording. And I feel like they never quite found him a good follow-up to Ragtime. He did the Kiss Me Kate revival, he did a couple of, he played Sweeney Todd, but like nothing, like he didn't originate a role after this that really felt like it was Brian Stokes Mitchell original uh, level. Uh, great. It's, it's like the Kate Hudson problem. Like Kate Hudson, remember when Almost Famous came out? They're like, it's the birth of a new star. And then Womp Womp, she did kind of a lot of second-rate romantic comedies for the rest of her life. Ben Brantley, who did the review of uh, Parade that we discussed earlier, uh, the headline of his review, he called this a diorama with nostalgia rampant. And I think that's a really good way of describing this. It's a diorama. <laughs> it's all just uh, sort of a portrait of something and it's like hey remember this thing from the history books cool there it is and uh that's all we have to say about that <laughs> it's like visiting the hall of presidents at uh disneyland sort of maybe it isn't the book that it's based on by el doctorow in the 70s uh it's uh classified as historical fiction but the dumb thing and I, full disclosure, I have not read the book, Ragtime, and I have not seen the non-musical film adaptation in 1981. And I really want to, but I haven't. So, my bad. But what's dumb about, I, just on the level of the musical, I think the way that they fumble the boundaries between history and fiction is stupid. And it's not Tarantino-level historical fiction, where it's like so audacious, like it's so completely changing the history that it's... It's not even making the pretense of telling the true story. It's just, there's these arbitrary, confusing changes. I think it's probably E.L. Doctorow's fault. So, um, yeah, fuck that. I, it's, and it, it bothers me, I guess. But that's just one guy's opinion. So, I mean, all, that's what all of this is, really. Ragtime the Musical lost the Tony to, guess what? The Lion King. And I remember at the time, I think I was kind of just parroting my parents' opinion, which is a thing that you do when you're an adolescent. Um, I felt like the Broadway musical was dying because of uh, it was becoming too much about spectacle. And, you know, a symptom of, of this was a few years earlier when they did that carousel revival with Audra McDonald, the famous bench scene with If I Loved You, like they had to do it in front of an enormous fake moon that probably cost millions of dollars. And... The Lion King was kind of the harbinger of a new era in Broadway where everything needed to be expensive as fuck and take your breath away. And um, the sad thing is that ragtime is a bit of a spectacle, right? Like they, they drive a real working Model T onto the fucking stage and it lost the Tony to, you know, ragtime is not great and the Tony Awards don't matter, <laughs> but it lost the Tony to a inferior show, if you ask me, The Lion King uh, with Disney razzmatazz and puppets that I don't think is going to go down in history as a good show. You know, I mean, the spectacle of it, oh, whatever, man. If you like The Lion King, then I'm sorry. And if you like Ragtime, I'm really sorry because I'm about to have some uh, criticisms of it. I was offered the role of Willie Conklin at that same theater that did Parade, actually, a couple years later. And the fact that I lived in L.A. County and it was in Orange County, that's what made me decide against doing it. I was not about to make that horrible drive for the role of Willie Conklin, who uh, is on stage for, you know, a total of probably 
seven minutes, if not less, throwing the N-word around left and right. <clears throat> um, somebody did a concert version of Ragtime on Ellis Island, which is like, why do people keep doing, like, what is the point of this? It's just like doing it in Marietta and doing Assassins in the Texas Book Depository. Do, 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 does it really matter that we're on the hollowed ground where a thing happened? Do it in a fucking theater with a concession stand. We don't need to go to Ellis Island, you moron. So yeah, anyway, I haven't read the book. Came out in 1975, E.L. Doctorow. So obviously the book has real people and fake people. The most puzzling fictional character in the book and by extension the musical is Colehouse Walker Jr. Because his actions in the story are like things that end up in the newspaper and they look to be historical events next to all these real ones, but they aren't. And so I think it makes people wonder who don't know, like, is that, did that really happen? Was there a guy named Colehouse? There wasn't. The name Kohlhaus is a reference to a German novella by Heinrich von Kleist called Michael Kohlhaus. And his story is adapted from an earlier work by the same author uh, that was about a man who was humiliated and desperately searches for a dignified resolution after being humiliated, which is what happens to Kohlwall House Walker Jr. They made a film of the book before there was a musical in 1981. It was made by Milos Forman. Now, I don't know why I haven't seen this. It's been on my mental cue for a long time because I love Milos Forman. Um, I love One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, and I love Amadeus, and I like The Man in the Moon, but uh, I haven't seen it yet. I did see in that uh, really long uh, documentary series about O.J. Simpson, O.J. Simpson really wanted the part of Cole House in that movie, and he did not get it uh, because he can't fucking act. And he's a murderer. But maybe he wouldn't have murdered if he had uh, you know, been in ragtime in the movie. Howard Rollins got the part over Cole House. I mean, over, of Cole House, over O.J. Simpson. We also get Brad Dourif playing the younger brother. We get Mary Steenburgen playing the mother. And then we get old Patink, Mandy Patinkin, playing Tata. Which on that alone, I can't believe I haven't seen this thing. I would love to see Mandy Patinkin, uh, you know, eat the fucking scenery as uh, Tata. And you also get a few, you know, you get Samuel L. Jackson, you get Jeff Daniels. And then weirdly enough, Norman Mailer is an actor in this. The asshole writer, Norman Mailer. Okay. Whatever. I just saw uh, a, some interviews with him on, um, uh, what's it called? The firing line from the, the old days. The, the, what, the other asshole, uh, William F. Buckley. Whatever. I would say if you've never seen Ragtime, a good entry point, um, you know, it depends, man. <laughs> like I said, there's no movie musical. If you want to take to YouTube, I did watch this morning some theater in the park thing in Florida from 2003. There are bootlegs of the original Broadway recording. I watched this one because it was not a bootleg. It was shot with, uh, you know, like multiple cameras, it seemed, with transitions and everything. It wasn't like a very good production with a very good cast, so it depends on how you like to see things. If you would rather see shittier uh, quality video of a really good cast, then watch a bootleg of the Broadway cast. But if you'd rather see a less well-made thing, uh, filmed well, then check this one out that I just saw. So, it's a theater in the park, uh, Florida, YouTube, ragtime. Now, here's the thing. Um, that little boy is so fucking annoying. 
1902, father built a house at the crest of the Broadview Avenue Hill. Um, when I saw it, it was Blake McIver Ewing, the little boy from Full House, Michelle's friend who does all the musical Top Hat and Cane shit. And, you know, so he was already getting on my nerves in the 90s. And then I had to see him in this. Um, and... The, the whole device that the show does in the opening number and throughout is this lazy technique of people addressing the audience and narrating their own stories. So, you know, if I'm playing Harry Houdini, I'll come on stage and say, Harry Houdini was an escape artist, you know, while I'm walking around being Houdini. And it's just so I think, you know, they can just lift passages from the fucking source material without adapting it. So just come on. Let's, let's, do, let's not do that. Ragtime. You're, you were already sucking and it just started. Also, the point, the whole like vibe, the, the theme of the opening number, that ragtime is the thing tying all of these elements together, is completely unproven. What are you talking about? The, 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 the white people in New Rochelle aren't listening to ragtime, and we find that out later. They hear it for the first time. And, but the, and everything was ragtime. It was the music of something beginning and era exploding a century spinning and and like like back like ragtime is the backdrop to the affluent whites with the tennis balls and the blacks in Harlem which it is for them obviously and the immigrants from Eastern Europe it's it's got nothing to do with any of that <laughs> so stupid am I wrong please write in and tell me I'm wrong if I'm wrong. So yeah, basically, so those three groups make up the uh, the, story, the 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 affluent whites, the the black people, and the uh, immigrants. Now, um, I did some theater in um, a community outside of Los Angeles, not Orange County, in a, a different area, but uh, actually way more conservative even than Orange County, as it turns out. This was uh, a certain city near Los Angeles where, um, let's just say, a lot of LAPD live and drive in from to police our city. And uh, yeah, um, so I heard that they had done ragtime there. And um, after they did ragtime, they were gonna do hairspray, but none of the black actors that were in ragtime would re-audition because they kept getting pulled over, driving home from rehearsal, leaving that city. So I'll leave you to decide what city that was if you're an LA uh, person. The, so ragtime music, this thing that does not tie these stories together, is awesome. Like, uh, I, as a piano player who's not a very uh, accomplished one, uh, who mostly plays by ear, it's very hard for me to play ragtime. I learned to play a simplified version of the Maple Leaf Rag when I was a teenager. My uh, teacher, Mr. Fister, taught it to me. And just the, the busyness of the left hand in ragtime songs is something that is very, very, very tricky. But it's fun to think like how rebellious and hardcore that music was. And uh, let me evoke one more time our friend Harold Hill from The Music Man. He's a rag, shameless ragtime, shameless music that'll drag your son, your daughter into the arms of a jungle animal instinct, mass hysteria. So um, it is cool how Stephen Flaherty um, invents his own neo ragtime. And there's something called the Ragtime Symphonic Suite, which um, is a little bonus track on the album. Uh, I would say just hold on to that, man. Don't even do this show. Just listen to Stephen Flaherty's Ragtime Symphonic Suite because then you don't get terrible lyrics like uh, there were gazebos and there were no Negroes. And um, you just get, you get that nice sort of new uh, late 20th century ragtime. That's my suggestion 
to you, listening audience. Booker T. Washington, uh, who, of course, is a real person, plays heavily into things, uh, as do a lot of other historical figures. Suspiciously, there's no W.E.B. Uh, Dubois, which is, of course, the other side of the Booker T. Washington debate. I mean, Booker T. Washington, uh, you know, ends up completely fucking everything up at the end of this with his advice to Colehouse. And he really is the, uh, you know, the 1904 uh, or 1906 version of fucking Bill Cosby telling people to pull their pants up. I, I don't I mean, pre-controversy Bill Cosby, you know, you know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, I'm not a black man. I'm not going to... Uh, make that argument one way or the other but it is weird that there's no web and there is a booker t they have actually instead as a sort of counterpoint to booker t a very cartoonish version of emma goldman who of course is on the class side of things rather than the race side of things and i said this when i did my uh, episode on assassins emma goldman is an amazing person who deserves her own musical. She needs to stop being a poorly drawn side character in musicals and she needs to have her own. Somebody with more cachet in this business than I needs to write the Emma Goldman musical because she's amazing. She's the mother of anarchist political theory, as we all know. Now, um, we get a song after the opening number called Goodbye My Love. So boring. I mean, all of Mother's songs in this are very boring. Now, Marin Mazzi, we lost her to ovarian cancer a few years ago. She was very talented, and she did a lot of other way better things than Ragtime. Um, snooze Fest, Goodbye My Love. And then the song following it. I liked it when I was younger because I could sing it and pretend I was on stage or whatever. It's corny as fuck. Journey On, this saluting of each other on the sea. One of it's a, on an immigrant rag ship and the other one is on a fucking expedition with Robert Peary, who is an imperialist prick who like enslaved the Inuit and sexually abused their, the women. Like, and say, having horrible lines like, uh, is it freedom or love that you crave for in your guttural accent too late, long gone? You know. And the, I guess the point of this song is like that these people, you know, the father... The wealthy father and the immigrant on the rag ship, Tata, are saluting each other and like they're the same. Like, and that point, again, unproven. The only reason they're the same is that they're on the same fucking ocean at that time. So anyway, stupid, dumb, boring. The character of younger brother. I wanted to play this part when I was younger. I'm way too old for it now. I'm pushing 40, heavily pushing 40, turning 40 in a few months here. And, uh, but younger brother is a dumb character. I mean, all of these characters are two dimensional, but you know, this is a, a young man full of passion and he's defined by his masturbation habits, especially in the book. As it turns out, my sister read this book. I, like I said, I never read it, but when, uh, we were in high school, I, we were on a road trip and she, uh, read me a couple of shocking quotes from this. And they were both about younger brother. One uh, the first one, and I remember the reason I know these is because I laughed my ass off when she read them to me. And then I uh, remembered uh, them and I Googled them and I found the actual quotes. Uh, talking about younger brother, he would grab at himself as if to pull his sex out by the roots. Okay, that's one thing. Um, and then also in the book, he's more of like, a, he's kind of stalks Evelyn Nesbitt a little bit more rather than just being a fan that sees her show a few times. And then he, I guess, has a relationship with her and has sex with her. Uh, quote, his ejaculate flew through the air like bullets and then settled slowly over Evelyn in her bed like falling ticker tape. 
I should mention that this is an explicit podcast uh, in case you were listening with children. Sorry about that. Even in the musical, they say, uh, poor young rich boy masturbates to a vaudeville tart. What a waste of a fiery heart. That's a pretty good line. That's one of the uh, exceptions to the bad lyrics. That's uh, a good line. Um, all the Evelyn Nesbitt stuff, like the, uh, sorry, Evelyn Nesbitt stuff is, is stale. The whole infamy, ooh, I've, I'm famous because of an, uh, a tawdry news item involving murder. <laughs> and we did this already, right? With what? Let's say it together now. Chicago. Thank you. Roxy Hart, Velma. Uh, he had it coming. He had it coming. So it's, this is well-worn territory already. Uh, however, Crime of the Century is a fun song. And I will say the whimsical songs in Ragtime are my favorite ones. They're the best ones. And that's not usually my take. I usually like the really serious things uh, or the darker things. But uh, the fun, upbeat songs in this show are the best ones. Then Mother finds uh, a, a African-American infant in the bushes and sings a song called What Kind of Woman? That was a fake snoring sound, by the way, in case you didn't know what that was. And um, I'm certainly not going to sit here and make a white savior argument about the character of Mother. But uh, you get where I'm going with this? Yeah. Then it goes to the uh, song Success. Uh, that's a fun song with uh, Tata. Let's talk about Tata here for a minute. So Tata is uh, one of our, you know, he's the, the, the lead character of the, the immigrant story. The, the, the three prongs here, he's the immigrant uh, lead character. But... Tata is a class traitor. Can we go around that? I mean, at least by the end of the... He left, Lof, he left Latvia, presumably with the wave of immigrants that were fleeing the uh, failure of the first Russian revolution, right? I mean, it was that, that's when we got a wave of immigrants from Latvia. And most of those people that fled to um, America and elsewhere were ra radicals trying to continue their revolutionary movements elsewhere. Not Tata. Tata came to America to sell some fucking silhouettes and to get his. And Emma Goldman says, come and join our workers' movement. He's like, I, I don't really like politics. <laughs> so who gives a shit about Tata? And then, you know, we get into it later, but by the end, he, he, he gets rich. For some reason, Tata invents filmmaking, which is the stupidest fucking thing ever, when we all know that it was the Lumiere brothers in France. Because he makes a little flip book. Um, yeah, fuck Tata. And fuck you for liking Tata, by the way. Tata was played on Broadway by Peter Friedman. Frank from Succession. Succession comes up a lot in these. Um, I think maybe because they just had a very New York-based cast. Another fun fact, uh, Tata's daughter, the little girl, original Broadway cast, that's Leah Michelle. Everybody's favorite uh, little friend from, uh, f uh, f uh, from the thing. <laughs> from Glee and more recently uh, Funny Girl. So yeah. Then we have songs like Getting Ready Rag. What happens with the black, that happens with the black people in Harlem. And, you know, that's similar to a rumbling and a rolling. It's like, it's hard not to imagine two white people sitting in a fucking office in, you know, Midtown writing, you know, black speech patterns into a song and with black music. It's weird to me. I think that it would be more criticized today. But people maybe give it a pass because uh, they don't remember it. Or whatever. Henry Ford gets completely whitewashed. He's kind of romanticized with this assembly line shit where he's making of the Model T. I mean, this fucking Model T is a symbol of hope and dream and freedom. And I get that it goes wrong, but 
you know, Henry, Henry Ford was a bad guy. Can we agree on that? This assembly line thing is not, you know, oh, even, even Cole House can buy a Model T. Isn't this wonderful? The promise of this country. And um, whatever, man. I'm not saying that the musical is actually romanticizing Henry Ford because, I mean, all of this stuff, the, the, the having of the Model T and the idea of justice in general all goes wrong and is disproven. I mean, at least with the story, I don't think that the musical really goes all the way in renouncing it, but I don't know. It bothers me to have a cheerful song about Henry Ford's assembly line because it doesn't feel like it's uh, whatever. Nothing like the city. I like this song. I like the theatricality of the song. Nothing like the city. They kind of fuck it up with the end where the little boy who apparently has psychic powers that can, you know, stop World War One if fucking Houdini had told the Duke his message in time, warned the Duke. But he says, uh, we know these people. No, we don't. Well, we're going to know them. This is fucking lame. I don't like that little boy. And I don't like that he's psychic. Pisses me off. The Irish really take a hit in this musical. Can we agree on that? <laughs> um... Willie Conklin, the part that I was uh, offered, uh, who was the head of the Iri the racist Irish firefighters, they are uh, nothing but evil in this, really. And I think the point that they're trying to make here a little bit is that the Irish immigrated from immigrated to the United States, you know, millions in the previous century, and now that they're here, they're just like, "Hey, we took shit. Now we're going to give you shit, everyone else." And uh, I don't know. The Slavic immigrants are handled with so much care. The Slavic characters are angelic. And I'm not trying to defend the Irish. I'm not that Irish. I have an Irish last name. But I mean, boy, how the tide has turned uh, with the, uh, you know, the, the Irish, our president right now, his, his ancestors were in that fucking wave of Irish American immigrants. So uh, there you go. That's Biden, by the way, Joe Biden. <sighs> Will, the character of Willie, he says the N-word I'm going to call it gratuitously. Like they, he says it too many times, like to the point where it's like, all right, we get the point. This is a racist character. I went out on a limb in my Assassin's episode uh, talking about the Ballad of Booth because the Ballad of Booth does a pretty, what I think is a brilliant thing uh, in composing the most beautiful, heart-wrenching song and then just reminding you midway through with the n-word that we're dealing with you know someone that says the n-word and i think that like that was done with so much more uh, grace and so much smarter um they just have willie say the n-word every time he fucking is on stage and the version that i saw uh today on youtube this version in 2003 they cleaned up all the language all of the four little words like fucking shit and they kept the n-word in that's interesting. And even, in, you know, uh, Willie has uh, a line where he says, I'm not going to say the N-word, where he says, uh, does, does he think only N-words get shit? We Irish had to get used to it. And they said, uh, does he think only N-words get crap? The Irish had to get used to that, I think. But then, but they didn't say the N-word. They said the actual N-word. So that's a weird choice. Different time, 2003. Your Daddy's Son is a very pretty song. Audrey McDonald uh, does a nice job on it, certainly. Um, the song New Music uh, sucks. 
that's a, a big moment in the show where she comes downstairs. There's this is a one of those instances where we can point out some shitty lyrics. Uh, His fingers stroke those keys, and every note says please. No, it doesn't. Haunting me and somehow taunting me. No, I hate lyrics that uh, have sweaty rhymes like that in it. And that's my term, by the way. Um, sweaty rhymes that I came up with. It's where somebody put a rhyme in there for the sake of the rhyme uh, that the, the all you can think of is the fact that the thing just rhymed because one of those things that are being rhymed is not something that anyone would ever say about anything. <laughs> the song that follows new music is a big moment in the show, Wheels of a Dream. Um, this is not my term. This is a Sondheim's term. These are purple lyrics. These are pseudo-poetic, uh, highfalutin lyrics that, again, depart from character because nobody would actually say, you know, beyond that road, beyond this lifetime, this car full of hope will always gleam. I hadn't heard this song in years. This felt like it was like the hit from the show. It brought back memories. I used to play it on the piano in my living room. And yes, I paid for the fucking sheet music, Jason Robert Brown. I didn't pirate it in those days. I bought it at Baxter Northrop Music in Sherman Oaks, California. And uh, I used to sing this song, you know, with the, at parties on the piano with white musical theater girls. It's kind of weird. Um, and, you know, uh, this takes place during a picnic. And a picnic that's reminiscent of the picnic at the end of Parade, but uh, is not as good. Not nearly as good. Because um, it's badly written. I'm going to say it. I don't have the same, uh, you know, feeling of uh, being moved by Cole House and Sarah as I do with uh, Leo and Lucille. And it's not because I'm a racist, by the way. Um, you know, at least I don't think so. <sighs> uh, we get the night that Goldman spoke at Union Square. That's a lost opportunity to tell a really interesting story with some depth. But it's only told from um, the perspective of an outsider. The younger brother. And it's all aesthetics. It doesn't really tell the story. Because, you know, Emma Goldman is a caricature. Tata's not on board. And the younger brother, who's our narrator in this, has nothing at stake. And that that's what's so annoying, is that you, you, they, they, they don't tell the story of this time period from somebody in that workers' movement. They just have Emma Goldman as this sort of uh, Che and Evita-style narrating person commenting on the action so uh why was your representative again from the immigrant community tata the fucking uh silhouette sellout tata the silhouette sellout that should be the name of this episode it probably won't be so then cole house is the victim of a hate crime the racist firemen destroy his model t He's rightfully indignant about this. He tries to get justice, and he sings a song called Justice, which is good. It's well-constructed as a sequence. The way that it has time pass, the way that he goes to all these different entities to try to get satisfaction, doesn't get it. That's one of the stronger points of the show. But then, like, he's singing about how he wants justice, but then he says, until then, I will not marry. So he says he won't marry Sarah until he gets justice. Why? That's stupid. What does one thing have to do with the other? You can marry Sarah. That's never really explained. Seems like a dick move to not marry Sarah. And then, of course, Sarah dies because she tries to uh, get him. Uh, she tries to talk to the vice presidential candidate. And uh, they think that he's, they, they, he's, they're all paranoid because William McKinley was just killed by Leon Jalgon at the Great Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo. And then uh, that's not that's from Assassins. Then Sarah dies. 
Uh, they kill her. And then uh, they close the first act with a Till We Reach That Day, one of the bigger crash boom bang moments of the show. Um, and then we have intermission. Go ahead and get yourself a nice oh, Perrier this time, you know. Uh, and then a lot of filler in the second act. I noticed that this time around. Like the songs in the second act, there's a lot of forgettable ones. And in fact, uh, I know they're forgettable because I forgot them until I saw it today. Cole House's soliloquy is a good one. Uh, where he shoots three people uh, dump, bump, bump, at the very end. But why? Mention ragtime. What the fuck does ragtime have to do with any of this? Just fucking just listen to that ragtime. Why? We're not talking about ragtime. We're talking about your dead wife or your dead fiance. Um, you know, one thing that they portray pretty well is this idea of destruction of property. This is a very American concern. I mean, that's the whole thing that set off all of this, you know, that they, they destroyed his car, his property, and then everybody's very worried about Cole House because he's destroying property. So I'm not saying other people in other countries aren't worried about property being destroyed, but, you know, we're very property, uh, property obsessed here in America because of how our country started. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that. Everyone knows that. Then we get to a funny song, which, as I said, are the best songs. And this is one of my favorites. Uh, what a game. And that's where they go to a football. I'm oh, sorry, <laughs> idiot. Baseball game. Um, and it's just, yeah, the, the, the basic conceit of that song is that father is uh, taking his son to a baseball game. But times have changed and all the guys in the stands are yelling a bunch of offensive shit. It does a nice job of uh, portraying whimsical, old-timey racial shit talk. Like uh, that you might hear in uh, that uh, weird Clint Eastwood film, Grand Torino, where they, you know, it's just like old guys calling each other Mix and Krauts, you know, but it's like, hey, you know, it's like whimsical. I'm not saying you should call anyone a Mick or a Kraut or that I should even use those words and not bleep them. But um, all, there's a line in that where it's a guy yells, hey, schnobbel, take your head out of your ass. Um, when I was still in my alcoholic disease, I got very drunk at a Dodger game and uh, I forget who the name of the player was. Um, but let's just say it was uh, Encarnacion. I don't know. I don't really follow baseball, but I was at a baseball game. And I kept screaming, Hey, Encarnacion, take your head out of your ass! And uh, a lady in the stands uh, with children asked me nicely to please stop yelling obscenities uh, at the game. So uh, there you go. Then we get to a song called Atlantic City. And here's the thing. Like, this is where I had a bit of an epiphany. I don't give a shit about father. I don't care about father. He doesn't make sense as the central character because I don't understand the status quo that he represents and I don't care about it. I understand that he's, okay, he's a wealthy man from the old way of doing things and that all of this ragtime is changing everything. It's new music. Oh, I've been away too long. But the musical does not do a good job of telling us what that other way was, that new, that initial way. Like, other than saying that there were no black people and no immigrants yet. So fucking weird Atlantic City is a pointless endless song then we get to Buffalo Nickel Photoplay Inc where um, Tata has transformed into uh, what it was, the Baron Ashkenazi and he's a filmmaker now and he's rich um, I have a personal history with this song I mentioned earlier in this episode that I went to UCLA uh, this was a very brief stint at UCLA um, I dropped out because I was starting to become a pothead and an alcoholic and I could not pass even a theater class but uh, in the, the, this class, we were supposed to bring in songs, and I brought this song in, and before I even sang it, the teacher yelled at me and shamed me in front of the class for not properly taping my sheet music, um, sheet music that I paid for, by the way. And um, so he was all pissed off about that, and he like yelled at me about that, and then I had to do this song. Um, 
And I think I did a good job. And everybody, all of my classmates were like, gave me a round of applause. But then the teacher refused to give me notes because he was pissed. He was still pissed about my street music. And so he just put it away. Everyone else like did their song and then got like a half hour of notes. But like he did mine. And he's like, next time, tape your music right. And then I sat back down. And that was the beginning of the end of me trying to be a musical theater performer. We uh, come to another song called uh, fucking, okay, Our Children. So fucking boring. Nobody cares about your children, Tata and Mother. Boring song. With uh, uh, two examples of terrible lyric writing. Uh, she has never laughed like this. Every waking moment bliss. Dude. Solemn joy and sudden spark. Why are you talking that way? Have a conversation. Do it to music. It's weird that Mother and Tata end up together. They should just be buddies. I remember I was surprised by that when I saw it originally, and I still am surprised by that. It is, it's stupid for her to end up with him, and they make a little uh, Into the Woods family at the end. Uh, he Wanted to Say is a stupid song. It's pretty, um, but like, who gives a shit about what was deep inside of Younger Brother at this point? Like, this is not about you anymore, Younger Brother. And it does the same thing that Journey On does. It even reprises the same... Uh, you know, two two men theme. I forget how it goes. Two men, da do 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 And it's attempting to say that these two are the same. And they're not the same, man. Just like Tata and fucking my father weren't the same. Fine. You want to help uh, Colehouse blow things up, younger brother? That's fine. But stop saying you're the same. In fairness, he doesn't say it. He said it, the whole thing is that he wanted to say it. Okay, my bad. Retracted. That song is fine. Uh, he wanted to say is fine by, uh, gets my uh, stamp of approval. And then we have Back to Before. I think Mother has too many songs. I think that uh, they were really trying to do an Ibsen Doll's House thing with this song, but like unearned at this point. Mother, has she really gained her independence in the absence of uh, Father? Like, did she really become a women's liberation hero? She, like, she's, she just ends up with another dude. And is it, is it just the fact that he's Jewish that makes it this revolutionary act? Like, she does practically nothing in this whole show but pluck an abandoned baby, baby out of a garden and then just hand it to her maid to take care of. I, I, I'm confused by mother, you know, sound off, ladies. Am I wrong about mother? I, uh, nothing but respect for the legacy of Marin Massey. This is the longest episode of any podcast I've ever done. I need to end this thing. Uh, let's finish it. Uh, Look What You've Done is a very frustrating scene and song with an argument between Booker T. Washington and Cole House. And it's, uh, again, Booker T. is, it's kind of horrifying thinking of Terrence McNally sitting and writing this uh, for the reasons that I said earlier. And to be clear, Booker T. gives Cole House terrible advice that gets him killed. Cole House should have fought to the end, obviously. But he, you know, lets all of his guys leave and he gets releases the hostage and then he sings Make Them Hear You. Great song, great performance by Brian Stokes Mitchell. But, um, and then it just goes into this fucking finale. So let me sum this up. I, I think that ragtime is kind of gross. And I think it's gross in the way that that aborted theme park that Disney made was gross. America, the theme park. Um, that if you don't know, that was in the early 90s. It was so theme park with different lands that were like parts of American history. There's a, some of that in Disneyland already where you go to the New Orleans Square and it's, you know, there's a steamboat and whatever. Um, but like they, they actually did have an immigrant land there and, uh, antebellum South land. And it sort of announced itself as an attempt to reckon, like it's a theme park, but we don't shy away from the darker sides of history. So this is a super liberal thing that we're doing. And that's what ragtime's trying to do, but it's fundamentally unserious. 
because of who the messenger is. And like in this case of this Disney park, it's because it's fucking Disney. And we know what Disney is. We know what Disney ultimately wants. It wants the money in your wallet. And it doesn't feel serious. It feels like ragtime. It feels like a blockbuster cash-grabbing entertainment that's using the facade of racial justice and class struggle. And the death of Cole House is devoid of meaning. It's a tragedy, but it's an empty one in the show. They don't follow it to a logical conclusion, which is that Cole House would have been better served by continuing to fight. So what is the point? Is it that so he puts down the sword and he says, uh, tells his people to use the pen or the pulpit instead, and then they shoot him. But incredibly, Ragtime is not advocating, advocating violent revolution. And maybe it should. And I don't know how I feel about violent revolution. I'm not going to advocate it either because I'm not willing to put my ass on the line for it. Um, and I am a, a Gandhi pacifist. And I, but, you know, Ragtime owes us something, doesn't it? Ragtime owes us some kind of critique and not just a fucking soppy ending. Sappy, soppy. But instead of, you know, uh, and the ending of Parade, you know, at least there, there's something there at the end of Parade. Like they're singing a patriotic song, but it's chilling. However, like they try to give it a happy ending. Like that closing number is cheerful. It's with this romantic, you know, Tata and mother and the kids. And then little Cole House third comes out. And the, the point is like the way we're all the same, man. Hey, your father's dead. Why? Because he started a violent revolution? No, because he aborted his violent revolution. It's fucking stupid. I, 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 I dislike Ragtime the Musical more than I thought he did at the beginning of this episode. I need to... Stop having this episode happen before I hit two hours. I'm not willing to cross that Rubicon. So listen, folks, thank you so much for listening. Um, in summation, parade good, ragtime bad. Watch this, not that. All right. I need to end this podcast I'm recording. I need you to like musicals. The worst thing about that, guys, is I I did plan that one in advance. I didn't come up with it on the spot, and it was that sloppy. Sorry about that, and thanks for listening. And until next week, journey on, baby. (laughs) 